Well, when driverless cars were first mentioned, they were sold, or the idea, the concept was portrayed as being motoring utopia, where we would all be able to get around and read a book while we're doing it and uh, be able to more travel in comfort. It's not that simple. A recent report from the researchers at the University of Sydney's Business School, more particularly the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies, uh, suggests that it may not be a force for good. And to talk about that, I have on the line Yao Wong, whom we know well and uh, who has done a lot of the research in this area. Yao, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. A pleasure to be here, David. What's the key point here about where driverless cars may cause us problems? Well, I guess I'm going to pick up on uh, where you started the program about this nirvana and this panacea that a lot of the technotypes, if I may, the Elon Musks, the Teslas of the world are sort of been um, promoting over over some period of time. And we're a lot more kind of uh, realist rationalists, I think, um, in, in, in this whole debate. So I think one of the key issues around um, autonomous vehicles is just linked to, I think, the issue of space and what autonomous vehicles and the pricing of them will mean in terms of how we use space in uh, cities. Cities are places where space is a very scarce commodity. It's a place of a lot of density. There's only a limited uh, capacity in terms of road space. And what a lot of these autonomous vehicles could mean in the future, because they are driverless, is it can actually replace a lot of the travel that's currently taking place on more spatially efficient modes like public transport, bus and rail in particular. And especially if you think about the dense kind of CBD inner suburb kind of environments, if these kind of people are moving from these high capacity modes into these kind of unlimited point to point transportation, if you will, autonomous taxi service, as some people have put it, then that's going to be a big recipe um, in terms of a disaster causing gridlock on the, on, on the road network. And with all sorts of externalities, well, kind of um, emissions, kind of urban form, uh, social inclusion and, and, and the like. One of the key parameters of whether I use my car or try other public transport, for example, is the value of time. What does the autonomous vehicle do to the value of time, given that I don't have to concentrate on driving? That's an excellent question, David. It's going to totally um, reconceptualise that value of time, I think. I think if you talk about time and travel time budgets, we have to go back to this idea called Machetti's Constant, which is an age-old idea about how humans have a travel time budget around 30 minutes one way or one hour per day. And as technology has actually evolved, cities have been able to grow bigger. So in this travel time budget, humans were used to live in tiny kind of civilizations where you walked everywhere. And there were horses, there were kind of railways, there were cars, motorways and the like. And it's gradually we've become grown the city to be really, really big. Autonomous cars, I think you're definitely right in terms of people being able to do different activities in them. So it may well be a case where it's going to exacerbate a lot of those urban sprawl issues. So people will be traveling, living further from the places of residence. It's going to lead to a lot of issues in terms of sprawl and and the urban form in a way where um, I think it will be um, 
quite a negative in terms of society. Because we have to come to, I suppose, why why cities exist in the first place as well. Cities are a solution to a transportation problem, and you get the kind of economies of scale, economies of agglomer- agglomeration from cities. And if uh, it's diluted like so much, it's it's going to be uh, you, you won't be getting these benefits, uh, these economic benefits, and also um, in terms of um, people's travel. I mean, they might be all right with it, but um, it will be uh, they will be uh, travelling further. I think. Parking your car at home or at the office takes up space, but equally then getting a car to drive to you produces a lot of what you might call dead running. How much do you think autonomous vehicles will increase the amount of travel without a passenger in there merely to get to the destination to well, to pick up the person or go from where they've delivered them? This is one of the key issues that you mentioned and one where I think government and governance has a key role to play in actually um, putting some regulation or institutional overlay to actually help this particular scenario that you that is described to help to uh, circumvent some of these issues. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's going to be a case where there will be a lot of autonomous vehicles deadheading with, with no one in them. The typical example you, you can have, you know, some you're taken from your home to, to work and then because, you know, parking is very expensive, the car sort of goes back home or something. And then the same thing happens in the afternoon. There might be other trips and pickups and suddenly something that's two trips become, become four trips. So I think that will be uh, a big issue. But of course, a lot of what you're talking about there is actually predicated on what is really linked to the ownership model of these autonomous cars. So this kind of scenario is really premised on people owning individual cars based on the present kind of ownership model that we talk about with private cars at the moment. But one of the things we've been pushing forth a lot, and we don't know if this uh, reality will, will emerge, is where these AVs are actually uh, shared. So people access them as a, as a fleet. So this links back to kind of mobility as a service kind of um, concepts and the like. And we think um, if we can move towards greater sharing, both of these vehicle assets, but also of space, so people sharing within vehicles or what we could term pooling, it will uh, lead to a much better outcome. But this sort of future is by no means guaranteed on its current trajectory. The value of sharing is that people have a perception of what it costs for each trip. And if you have autonomous vehicles that are shared, but they're doing the same number of trips for people, then we haven't really achieved much. What must the government do to help try and price this particular service? Before I just get to there, I think there has been um, you know, quite a bit of work that's been done where, I mean, at the, presently where, where cars are individually owned, you know, 95% of the time they're idle, they're, they're, they're parked somewhere, you know, so, and, and so they're not very uh, well utilized um, temporarily. But if there was a fleet, it was shared, we can be reducing the entire kind of car network that's out there by, by a lot because the cars will be used much more intensively. But of course, there's a lot of kind of peaking issues, I suppose. A lot, you know, a lot of it will be for catering for, for the peaks. In terms of your, your question linked to pricing and, and what needs to be done, I mean, we've been, this is all about um, how we can price the transport network effectively, efficiently, as we do in a lot of other utility markets, water, electricity, telecommunications and the like. And it goes to kind of road user charging, and this is stuff that has been talked about since you know the 1960s, and you know it's been implemented in kind of cordon implementations in places like.
Stockholm, London, Singapore. But in terms of a really network-based, network-wide efficient charge, it, it really hasn't been done. But what we think in the future, when people are, if it does occur, people are accessing um, cars through a shared model rather than owning it, and people pay perhaps a subscription price to, to access these mobility services, is that there might be the, that potential. We can actually hide a road user charge within the uh, subscription uh, mobility price such that it's invisible, it's hidden to the end user, because that's where so much of the pushback at the moment comes. And that's why governments, the police, they don't want to touch it. So when I raised this issue with um, Minister Tudge, I thought he was very receptive in terms of in, in this future, in terms of uh, how we can actually get the get the reform happening to better optimise the road network and use pricing as a demand management tool. I haven't met a planner who doesn't agree with the need for a pricing mechanism across the board. And I think we were in Singapore for the conference just recently, the Threadbow Conference, and Singapore is producing an area-wide taxing mechanism they started with the the tax around the cbd which i think is a rather blunt tax for a particular mode you're talking about a system tax which uh, affects everybody and i think that has great validity so the point about the system tax is politicians hate it because it's being opposed by being called another tax if we were to try and smooth the tax out, what sort of charges would you think we need to collect per kilometre? This is absolutely correct in terms of the whole framing by a lot of um, proponents or, or anti-opponents kind of uh, opponents around tax and about um, the end user, the, 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 the punter, if you will, being worse off when we really see this as a kind of a revenue neutral exercise. It's about shifting inefficient taxes to more efficient ways to actually um, to actually tax. I mean, people pay taxes already to use um, the road network as kind of registration, the sort of a fuel excise. You know, registration is a very kind of blunt instrument. Fuel excise, that's going to be, it's going to be a big problem in terms of when, when the transport system becomes electric, in terms of how that actually can still be linked to demand. So in terms of a lot of the modeling that we've done at ITLS and what we've been pushing through our um, director, David Henshaw and other people, is we propose a five cents per kilometer charge in peak period only as a starting point. So we think um, doing that, we can actually get the, the traffic down to uh, school holiday level. So around 10% reduction in traffic. And when you do a 10% reduction in traffic, you're going to get something like a 30%, 40% reduction in kind of uh, travel time because we know traffic and the travel time relationship isn't linear. So um, that's the sort of the suggestion we've been pushing, and it is all a revenue-neutral kind of uh, methodology. But um, there's all once you have the systems in place, I think, and people start seeing the benefits, I think there might be a lot more appetite for maybe uh, that charge to be increased, to be changed a little bit. It could be taken to six cents, seven cents. That could be used to for instance, to compensate some of the toll road uh, providers that uh, might not be happy with a regime like that because, um, you know, they're, they're, they're going to lose a lot of their, um, their toll money uh, mechanism, for instance. That's the sort of future we've been pushing for some time. But still, polys, polys won't get anywhere near it. Cars are sort of taken as sort of um, the holy grail, the kings in, in, in the society. But the way we toll at the moment is we put a huge impost, financial impost, on people using the road we'd prefer them to use rather than going the back ways. So how important, well, 
it, will it be also that mm. a tax on the peak alone, will that mean that people give up the cars or do you think that they will move to the non, or some will move to the non-peak times? On the first question that you mentioned about the, the, the road hierarchy and the present system, you're absolutely right. I mean, we have a road hierarchy in place, you know, your suburban streets, the kind of uh, arterial roads, uh, main roads, highways, motorways and the like. And it should actually be the other way around. People should be driving on the motorways for free and they should be paying when they're taking local streets and rat running and the like. So in terms of our development of um, this model for um, for network efficient road user charge, we think very much that it has to be a function not just of um, of time, as we talked about, to the minute and geography, but geography quite specifically in terms of that road hierarchy. That's uh, the type of road that, that you're using as well. In terms of your related follow-up question about what sort of shift that we think might be possible, in, in terms of our, our work, we've identified that around just only 30% of peak travel is actually really, really um, time sensitive. Um, it might be, you know, a tradie trying to make an, an appointment or a booking, people going to school, or a lot of workplaces these days have quite flexible working arrangements. So we think there's quite a considerable amount of um, peak travel, 70%, in fact, that we think can be moved to, to off-peak and be smoothed to other kind of uh, temporal, temporal periods. Which makes us be able to use the system much more effectively. Are you talking there just about a little bit of a push to help people understand and consider their alternatives? I think getting buy-in from the public is absolutely, it's absolutely crucial in terms of the journey or the, or the fight that we have. But I think it's more than that. There's, a, you know, there's the carrot and kind of sticks approach, but in terms of linked to kind of mobility as a service and what we're talking about in the future with these kind of um, new business models, these new shared mobility providers, the ride sharing, car sharing, bike sharing, how they're interacting with public transport. There's so much scope for them to, you know, incorporate like retailers, other sort of uh, businesses if they want in on, on the entire model. And it could be even fun for the end user, for the consumer. You know, you can you can do um, sort of a network management by, you know, offering someone uh, a voucher at Starbucks, you know, to because there's the train delay or something and you can help smooth travel or, or reallocate travel. So or, or a whole host of um, ways, I think, um, apart from just pricing, but through you know things that are linked to pricing, I suppose, at the end of the day, but through other sort of mechanisms to, to shift uh, and change uh, travel behavior for the better. I heard someone say that the impact of driverless vehicles should be so great that perhaps we should only allow them within government-controlled mobility-as-a-service type arrangements. How heavy-handed do you think the government is going to have to be, given you've said how significant the disruption could be from this particular product? At the moment, I haven't heard so much about um, what you might be suggesting in terms of that worry about link to what it will mean for congestion. And that's why government has to be very ha heavy handed in terms of um, where that might be deployed and the like. But I, I, I suppose a lot of where we might see initial deployment is linked to kind of um, controlled environments, 
kind of where there's you know more right of way for these autonomous vehicles and this might be a this might be a scenario which will have a lot of um, unintended consequences ramifications on other kind of users vulnerable uh, road users cyclists for instance pedestrians you know when you actually uh, make space more dedicated for these vehicles so I think there's a still a lot out there a lot of unknowns um, about that safety element about how, how they're deployed but um, you know, linked to what we've been talking about in terms of its impact on, on congestion and other issues. Generally, I would say not enough recognition of some of the risks that um, a lot of these new technologies entail. A lot of kind of technological determinism in the community, I think, in, in bureaucrat, in government and the like, fueled by a lot of the hype. You see a lot of the technotypes, the giants, you know, how much, you know, venture capital money they've been able to to attract. So I think there is yet lack of understanding on some of the potential unintended consequences and it's our job we see as academics provide the evidence based and and to put the truth out there how much will autonomous vehicles push for a new change for example how much do you think autonomous vehicles may push for us to better allocate the space on the road you mentioned that in one of your your answers there that we might need more specifically allocated road space bicycles autonomous cars trucks or whatever how much do you think this will be pushed by this autonomous technology i think it's absolutely critical that we sort of reallocate road space to the most efficient modes i mean Roads are, account for about 30% of all uh, urban uh, land. There's already enough roads, I would, I would contend. And every time we talk about new kind of infrastructure projects, be it you know, public transport and the like, or even just something like building a bus lane, it's always about building a new lane rather than reallocating that existing road space. And we know from kind of cost-benefit work, all these new infrastructure projects, most of the cost, it's in property acquisition. It's in kind of uh, purchasing that right of way through property acquisition, through tunneling and the like. And that's why, you know, you're very lucky to get, you know, benefit cost ratios of one or two, whereas a lot of what can be done and less kind of sexy kind of infrastructure projects, if you like, you can get kind of benefit cost ratios of in the 20s and 30s are things linked to like pinch points, bus lanes, queue jumps, reallocating road space. But firstly, it's not big ticket items. There's less kind of ribbon cutting for the police and also road space car, car road space for cars is sort of sacred, unfortunately. I think for, for AVs, it, it could be an opportunity, but also it, it may well, um, you know, not really change in, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways. I think a lot of people have been looking at kind of a transition process towards um, a fully uh, autonomous network. And I think when there's a mixture of uh, autonomous vehicles, but also uh, manually driven vehicles, there will be a lot more push and onus to actually have these dedicated lanes, if you will. But I think a lot of the manufacturers... And, and even just different classes of, of autonomous vehicles in terms of how autonomous they are. We, we know about the SAE's kind of uh, five levels of, um, of autonomy. But I think it will be uh, definitely a, a challenge in terms of how we might be able to leverage this to, to better allocate road space. Yes, I think autonomy may well come within very defined corridors, which mm. leads to the point, and I'll conclude here, that you did a lot of work with the bus industry in this regard. Could autonomous vehicles have the biggest impact in public transport through the bus network. How much will the bus 
network and the services it can provide benefit from autonomous vehicle technology? Autonomous technologies have uh, the potential to be to really um, transform in terms of how we provide public transport by actually cutting the link between quantity of service and its labor costs. We know most of the costs in providing bus services and, and the like is in labor. But I think that is one potential. But I think the more kind of um, realistic kind of potential is because they've become so cheap. It actually um, destroys a lot of public transport because people won't be taking uh, large, large vehicles, um, but they'll be taking um, smaller kind of autonomous shuttles or pods and the like. And we already talked um, in, in this session about, um, you know, it's linked to congestion and use of road space. So I think there are a lot of um, opportunities and also realities there. And I do deal a lot with the, with the bus industry. So one of the things we've been, you know, talking about quite recently is with autonomous technologies, what exactly is the role of bus operators in this sort of ecosystem in this future? In terms of what's ha been happening over the past period of time is there's more and more kind of de-risking of bus operators on the government side with gross cost management contracts that become an extended public servant. And equally so on the kind of manufacturer side, these vehicles as a service, these latest buses, you know, the, the sort of um, operators, you know, they, they have to go back to the manufacturer for, for everything because they're so technologically advanced, things like the government ownership of assets and the like. So it becomes a case where bus operators, their only value add is really organizing labor. And we know how much um, of kind of homogeneity there is these days, you know, there's lack of branding and differentiation. Well, it's linked to kind of um, the ideals of network integration and the like, but it becomes a case where in the future, you know, when these vehicles are autonomous, there's no need for a business like bus operator anymore. An entire layer can be sort of removed from the kind of business ecosystem. And there's too many parallels with kind of bricks and mortar kind of retailers, um, the kind of Kodaks and Blockbuster borders, for instance, so I think these bus operators have to sit up and think about what is their value, what sort of risks they are best willing to take up, you know, integrate their business vertically, horizontally, transform themselves through what I talked about as mobility as a service to become sort of um, to subcontract, to try different modes, to actually try and tap the other 80% of people that aren't on the, the bus network, to try to transform themselves into total uh, transport providers, if you like. So that's a real challenge, I think, for this bus operator community. Well, many car companies, including Ford and others, have said that they want to be a mobility mm. company rather than just a car manufacturing. I think you've reflected in a very interesting way what it might mean to bus operators as well. Yal, I appreciate your time greatly. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you, David. And that's Yao Wong, who is a research analyst for the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at the University of Sydney. And they have just released a report titled Moving People, Solutions for Policy Thinkers. And it has been prepared in conjunction with the Bus Industry Confederation, but also presented to the Minister in terms of urban planning.